and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I'm delighted to have retired Commodore Peter Scott from the Royal Australian Navy. He was the man in charge of all the Australian submarines, and he had some pretty hairy stories and some really interesting times and and wrote an incredible book, which I've just finished reading. It's in my book reviews on the on the website called Running Deep. Running Deep is a great theme because he also now is running ultra marathons. He's just recently come back from doing 100 miles around Mont Blanc. And as I went for my morning run with the dogs this morning, I was just telling him that was a short run. I was just out for a short jog and then a workout in the gym. But I was thinking of Peter as I was doing that. I was also listening um, to a book called Culture Code, which is uh, well worth listening to, which I recommend. But they were talking about Navy SEAL training. And so there was the theme of the Navy. So uh, it also is very special for me having Peter, because as those who can see on any videos, I've got my father's naval cap behind me. He was fleet air arm in the in the uh, the British Navy. But also my godfather, his best mate, was a submariner in the Royal Navy uh, just after the war. And the stories he told me, and he was in Malta and things like that, of how they lived on these tiny submarines. I mean, yours was small, Peter, but these were tiny. Uh, really made my hair stand on end. Uh, stories of daring do and, and uh, heroism. But also the fact that as a submariner, you have to be multi-skilled because you can't go and get someone else from the shipyard when you're under when you're under the sea. You go, look, you, you have to understand about engines. Go and sort that one out. Here's a spanner. Off you go. Um, but without further ado, Peter, welcome. It's lovely to have you on the show. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for the uh, warm introduction. And thanks for the invitation to come and, and have a conversation uh, with you and your audience. Yeah, well, it's, it's lovely. We had uh, recently Oscar Trimboli. Uh, how uh, to listen and uh, Oscar said uh, a guy I recommend as an inspiring leader is Peter Scott and Peter's now you become a, an executive coach you're uh, coaching leaders in business and and that seems to be um, for some of the uh, some of the best coaches I've come across that combination of having done something else in their career business maybe but a mixture of business and military i've got i had a an raf air vice marshal i've had a, a naval officer a helicopter pilot yourself who, who've turned their skills and their love of leading people into their passion for helping other people become better wow. leaders is so tell us a bit about why you got excited about coming uh becoming uh an executive coach like myself yeah sure jonathan um uh, I, I can pinpoint where that started, actually. Um, in my final years in the Navy uh, as, a, as a senior officer there, I actually took on an executive coach myself. And um, for three or so years, um, he was tremendously helpful in um, just helping me think through my challenges, um, develop solutions, execute and... Um, uh, so I, I became an absolute fan of the the, um, the process uh, and 
as it came time for me to think about moving on from Navy, um, one of the things I wanted to do was stay connected. Um, so I've, I've remained in the reserves and I, I deliver coaching through the reserves into some senior leaders in Navy and Air Force and, and Army now. Um, and it, it just appeared to me to be a great way to do a lot of what I've always loved, which is helping others to, you know, just reach their potential and, and, uh, and, and meet their challenges. Um, but from a, from a different perspective in a different, you know, not in a command relationship, um, not as a director or as a direct boss, but much more in a partnering role. Mm. Uh, and obviously, you know, I was confident that I had the direct um, lived leadership experience, both being led and leading. Um, but I went to a lot of trouble to um, then qualify myself as a coach as well, getting certifications and doing a master's and so on. Mm. So just to, just to round all that out and uh, and help others in that way. Yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. And uh, on YouTube, people will be able to see your room, uh, which is uh, behind you with the pictures. But for those listening on um, audio, uh, just tell us about the there's three pictures I can see on the screen behind you that, that oh. clearly capture some moments in your career. Would you want to just tell us what those are? Yeah, there's a there's a few there. So so one on my over my right shoulder is a farewell. Um, in fact, they might all be farewell sort of gifts or mementos from from people. That one is from my time as uh, director general submarine. So so leading the submarine arm and and uh, my time as head of the profession there. Um, the the one in the centre is actually the the bridge ensign. So. On any on any warship, of course, we'll fly our our national flag on the bow and and uh, an ensign off the stern. Um, there's not a lot of room for big flagpoles on submarines, so we just carry <laughs> a little ensign which we would fly off off the bridge or the fin, the top of the submarine there. Mm. And that was um, one that we flew on a on a Southeast Asian deployment I conducted with uh, one of my one of my submarines, and and it's you know sort of signed off by the by the crew. Mm -hmm. There's a little one there, which is a, a farewell from Navy. It, it kind of lists the whole all, all my postings through through a couple of decades. The one uh, further to the left is actually a chart. It's there are not many charts which cover all of the Pacific Ocean. So very often they'll cover you know the Western Pacific with China and Southeast Asia or the Eastern Pacific, um, but that covers the lot and it it traces out. A, uh, a deployment I did with HMAS Collins, so the longest deployment ever conducted by an Australian submarine, um, Perth, um, across the Pacific, uh, up to Alaska and, and back home, uh, 185 days. Most of that was dived um, and 21,000 nautical miles. So we've actually had the submarines do longer deployments, um, as in longer time away, but but not yet covered that that distance. It's a long way in a little diesel boat. It's a hell of a long way, and that was the thing I really I found listening to your audio book. It was it was one of those um, things where you just you couldn't wait to get onto listen to it again when it was the next dog walk or a run or a session in my gym, and and I really enjoyed it. But the thing that struck me was that. Um, it's always worrying in the armed forces when you're in a piece of kit made by the cheapest supplier, the, the, <laughs> the, the bidder who's given the lowest bid, because 
you know, it might all go wrong. In me, it was warrior armored fighting vehicles in Bosnia. In you, yeah. it was a submarine which was way below the ocean. And when you had floods and fires and problems with batteries and things like that, um, a lot of the time it was poor manufacturing, whoever made it. It doesn't really matter what it was. And the fact that our governments tend to try and push to the right the next replacement in order to save money. But it has an impact on the servicemen who are in that. What's what's your own view on that? Yeah, look, um, <clears throat> the first thing I'd say at the outset is that the, most of the submarines I've served in is, in the Australian Navy have actually been first-rate submarines. You know, the, the Oberons that I served in uh, early on, uh, British-designed and built, and, um, you know, they, uh, they, they were a highly evolved platform and exceptionally capable for their day didn't mean that you didn't have occasional failures and um, and difficult days at sea. The Collins boats, um, remarkably um, advanced from a technological perspective compared to those, those O-boats. And we did have some trouble with them, and particularly in the early days when we were just sort of ironing out the bugs and, and really learning how to, how to um, operate them, but also optimise the effectiveness of the submarines. Um, and look, Jonathan, you spend enough time at sea in a submarine, you're going to have a you're going to have a day where you get a bit of water in the people tank. Um, I think the um, at more strategic point that you make there about the timeliness or otherwise of government decisions, you know, that can really impact people. And we're in a situation now in Australia where really we've needed a decision on a replacement class of submarines for about the last 20 years. And there've been plenty of decisions made um, over time. Um, they haven't resulted in new submarines for the, for the Navy. Um, and, and moving off in, um, you know, a very particular direction now with the um, determination that we'll uh, acquire nuclear powered mm. uh, submarines. Mm. So a, a, a phenomenal evolution Um uh, not before time, in in my view, uh, you know the the uh, you just have to look at the expanse of the Australian coastline or the, the vastness of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean to understand that Australia's always needed nuclear powered submarines because of the, the speed and the range advantages that they have. Um, we've just never been um, had a government that was in a position to set that as the requirement. Um, so happily now we, we are. Mm. Yeah, and it has been fascinating watching, um, as a Brit, it's always quite fun watching the French <laughs> get really pissed off when they <laughs> thought they had the deal to provide your next submarine. And then in came the the uh, the, the Brits and the Americans who went, Let's, we'll, we'll work with you and you can have one of ours, um, which, will, of course, we'll all be in the similar thing. And so uh, that really upset the French for a long, long time. Um, <laughs> but we won't mention I rugby. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't have any um, uh, traditional uh, animosity towards the French at all, and no. uh, they, they would have um, created a great. They're, they're a great submarine operating nation. Um, yeah, is they are. One, and, and you and you mentioned them in your in your boat you, in your book rather. You had a number of good interactions with a number of different uh, number of different navies, but of course the interesting one is going to be uh, when you come face to face, as you often did. Another submariner I had, who's a, a good friend of mine, Bob, uh, he found himself one day on the seabed of the North Sea, right oh. next door with his nuclear submarine, right next door to a Russian nuclear submarine, which oh, was yeah. tinkering with the cables along the seabed because uh -huh. the Russians are all working out where to cut all our our um, 
our cables and our connections and internet and everything. So um, as soon as any kind of thing goes on, and lately their thing is blowing up pipelines, uh, which seems to be their their particular forte. Uh, But yeah, he found himself on the seabed and he's pretty certain the Russians didn't know he was right next door to them. But Uh you must have had some pretty hairy moments next to the Chinese um, submarines because they've got so many of them. How many have they got, do you reckon? Yeah, they're they're in the order of 60 or 70 and and across uh, half a dozen different classes. And, of course, you know, building at a rate of knots, both, um, you know, diesel electric boats, uh, nuclear attack boats and and ballistic missile boats. Uh, Phenomenal industrial effort um, from the Chinese. And, and, you know, they they learn quickly and and their submarines are better and better year on year. So... um, yeah, they're, they're building a, a formidable force. Up there. They are, they are. And in fact, someone, um, I was reading an article just the other day, where often it's been said that America spends more than any other Navy, any other armed force combined. But they think now that the Chinese have been understating what they're spending on defence, as you see some of these huge aircraft carriers. And of course, mm. we don't see their submarines, but their submarines go, the scale at which they are, um increasing the size of their armed forces they're a major major threat to you uh and of course the paracel and the sprat is it the spratley islands and the paracel islands yeah. where they've been yeah. building airfields and putting in uh service to air missile systems and all sorts in an area which actually the the philippines and the indonesians are saying that hey hey that this is this is our our territory they go nope the china sea south china sea is all ours we own the whole lot yeah, there are certainly some uh, some extensive claims there from the Chinese, and and certainly um, again over the last couple of decades, uh, determined efforts to um, militarize uh, many of those reefs and and, and atolls. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway, we, we can go off on a, a whole fascinating <laughs> tour of Belt and Road and China uh, taking over all the uh, special uh, rare minerals around the world from Botswana to. Uh, uh to uh jamaica but anyway that's another story in itself i'm fascinated with this whole topic of inspiring leadership your book running mm. deep uh your experiences and the whole theme of leadership and tips that you have uh when we were having that lovely warm-up chat uh, a, a few weeks ago um i asked you about a couple of uh inspiring leaders that you would like to appreciate you'd like to call out you know uh, and yeah. the qualities that they had would you briefly tell me who those two people are that you're going to call out yeah, look, I, I couldn't go past a bloke by the name of, of Mike Deeks. Um, Mike and I met first uh, very early on in my, my naval career. In fact, uh, he was my first ever at sea CO. In our, in our first year as midshipmen at the Naval College, he took us out for a number of weeks on a, on a tiny little vessel, um, a dozen midshipmen, half a dozen crew and, and Mike. Um, in later years, he was my, my commanding officer in one submarine Otway when I was the torpedo officer, another Orion when I was the navigator. And then later he was the force commander when I was in command of my own submarines. So, um, you know, lots of touch points over the years. Um, he always um, struck by uh, the the boundless humility of the man, just, you know, grounded, centred, connected to himself, but also um, a wonderful humanity, um, you know, very empathetic and compassionate and, and just able to connect to others. Uh, he's a towering bearded fellow, so he might he might have been, you know, intimidating and imposing, but for that 
um, you know, very, uh, very humble approach. Um, sort of bloke who was always, um, and, you know, the mark of a good submariner, always willing to seek and take the advice of others um, to complement his own competence. And he, he was very good. Um, and just never afraid to admit a mistake or to admit that someone else was more right. Um, and, you know, he was rewarded, you know, year on year with people who were happy and able and, and willing to put in, you know, the extra yards. Yeah. And just stay, staying with that one, you know, as you coach mm. business leaders now, as I do, um, I'm, I'm working with a number of different CEOs and their teams around the world. And, and there's a common theme often where the CEO is the brightest, smartest person um, on the uh, on the team. He's a really clever guy and he could solve all the problems and often they oh. like to. But it's a bit like turn the ship around the other one, the other submariner, which I love, yeah. uh, Captain David Marquet, who I had him on the podcast as well. And leadership is language. And in his book, you know, putting masking tape over your mouth so that you don't think you've got all the answers. In, this is in business as well as in the Navy as the as the right. captain. And yeah. and what you're saying there with Mike Deeks uh really resonates for me and what I what I really try and encourage the CEOs to do, that they don't have to have all the answers and they can admit that they don't know and they need some help. And what do you guys think? Right. Um right. And to draw on their first team, the team who who work to them, just as their first team is the one they report up to. Any yeah. thoughts about the business connection from what Mike's done? Yeah, look, I I absolutely agree. It it is a um, it is a talent though that people need to or often need to develop is that ability to um, hold their own competence and confidence and ability. And just kind of pull pull that to the side, in order to give, um, you know, those under them or around them the opportunity to lean forward, to think, to take responsibility, to innovate. Um, and it it doesn't matter whether you're in a submarine or you know leading a tech company. Um, the ability to I, there was a moment in time. I was in command of one of my submarines and it dawned on me, we've got a ship's complement of about 60 people, 60 odd people. And it dawned on me that at best on a really good day, I probably had about 2% of the sum intellect and um, experience and knowledge that was available on board that submarine. And, and from that moment, I saw it as my job to use that 2% to liberate the other 98% of intellect and energy and um, and curiosity and so on. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I very much see that as um, one way of describing the, the role of a, a That's leader great. in any enterprise. Yeah, no, to liberate the other 98%. I, I love that one. Thank you for that. And what about your other, your other top uh, inspiring leader? So he is at the top. So... <laughs> That is uh, His Excellency, the Governor-General of Australia, uh, General David Hurley, um, who um, very generously wrote a forward to, to my, my book, which you'll have read, Jonathan. Uh -huh. um, so, so my most direct connection with him as a leader was I was his chief of staff um, uh, when I was in the, in the rank of captain, um, and uh, David Hurley was the 
the vice chief of the defence force. Um, and, and that was a, a, an intense year, <laughs> um, but an amazing opportunity to be up really close and personal as he navigated those, you know, big, heavy responsibilities and, and grappled with, you know, the strategic issues of the day. And, you know, as there, we were at war in Iraq, we were at war in Afghanistan, um, we were fighting for resources at home. Um, but I was, you know, daily just in awe, again, of his uh, very humble approach to service. Um, it was quite clear to me on occasion that he would, he would very deliberately place his values alongside the big decisions um, and, you know, use them as, as a gauge and, and as his guide. Um, mm, that's really great. And, and not lacking in emotion or passion, but very able as a, a senior leader to, to convert those to, you know, resolution and, and action. Um, so just, yeah, um, brilliant, brilliant to watch and um, uh, remarkable. I think one of the things I learned from him was um, to he opened up new dimensions of capacity to accept responsibility just to take on responsibility and to discharge it. Mm, quite mm. Uh, quite remarkable. Hmm. Right. Well, uh, thank you for calling out Mike Deeks and uh, His Excellency, the Governor-General of Australia, David Hurley. Mm. Um, now your book and your life. I mean, in, in, in a way, your book is about your life and your experiences. Uh, as I say, I, I'm not just saying it because you're here. I think it's a must-read for any uh, military man, any, any business man or woman, to think about some lessons from that. And also I was very much uh, respectful of your vulnerability and that you showed through the difficult times that you went through, what you learned and some experiences. But if you were to pick out a couple of experiences that have shaped the man you are today, uh, the leader you were in uh, as Director General of Submarines, but at any time, the commanding submarines, uh, and and the kind of leadership coach you are today. What to pick out two stories from your life that that have shaped you that might be useful to other people that you know you've learned from. Sure, I'm not sure that it's a, a story per se, but I'd have to start with uh, with the family that I I grew up within. Um, had very strong um, male role models, and I did see the the men in my family as as my role models. Um, you know, a grandfather who um, fought in the First World War uh, came home to, you know, be the patriarch of a, of a loving uh, family. An uncle who uh, served in the Air Force in the, in the Second World War in New Guinea. And another uncle who um, was, was a priest through, through his whole life and, and built a, a parish around, around himself. And my dad, who was a, a career-long public servant. So um, all people with very strong um, family values, all, you know, service-oriented. And, uh, you know, it, it was no, um, no big leap for me to say, all right, well, I might um, step off. I'm looking for a little adventure. I'm looking to explore the world. Um, but it makes sense that I want to serve in some way um, you know, perhaps the navy is is the place is the place for me. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, service 
comes across throughout your book and, and, and all the different commands that you had, the things you learned when you were a staff officer, as you say, for David Hurley, um, serving uh, in Iran, uh, sorry, Iraq, that's a, a Freudian slip. We've just talked about Iran <laughs> with, with Hamas. Um, but just all those different experiences that you had. Um, mm. and, and it sort of, uh, how, the, the other thing that struck me was um, people who are in special forces or they're constantly on deployments uh, in uh, very stressful situations where there's almost like a, I think we used to describe it when I was doing operations in Northern Ireland as an acceptable level of violence. I mean, like, right. what? How can you How can you have an acceptable level? Oh, there's only, you know, today there was just about, you know, 10 bombings and three, mm. three murders, three shootings, you know, normal kind of day. And, and you go, so, so your level of stress that you took as an acceptable level of stress and danger was far higher than anybody else in a day job in the kind of businesses i'm in and i go guys let's get this in perspective has anybody died today you know so but but even on your submarines you wouldn't want anybody to die but there would be accidents or there'd be a threat to the ship or the the batteries all start bubbling up and or there'd be gases on the thing and you'd have to take evasive action or whatever might happen or a flood and you had to try and save the submarine um it, it, we were describing how cumulatively someone had described it to be like being exposed to radiation. It builds up in the body, doesn't go away. Or, or like uh, if being a being an Aussie, you know, my brother when he lived out there, slip slap slop. He, he was a he was a cancer surgeon. You know, you cover oh, yourself okay. in cream because of course you're you're so uh, exposed to the uh, the gap in the ozone layer, and lots of people get uh, skin cancers, and it's cumulative. And it's the same with the level of. Uh, stress and anxiety that you had and the, there was a cost of that and and yeah. you've come to deal with it later in life through psychologists and uh, taking some professional help but also there's a big culture in the military particularly uh, in submarines of of drinking and 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 that had a cost for you do you want to talk about both the drink and the the the, the pressure that's on you and that how, how you deal with some of the situations that you've gone yeah. through in your life yeah um, look, I, I reckon uh, a lot of those experiences do accumulate, as, as you suggest there, Jonathan. And I think typically, and, you know, through most of my career, I've managed them reasonably well. You know, you find the downtime, you take the leave, um, whatever else it might be. But uh, certainly as a youngster um, joining that Navy, it's a different Navy today. And joining that submarine arm, there was a very heavy uh, drinking culture. And it was the sort of go-to coping strategy for um, bonding as a team, uh, for dealing with uh, trauma, um, for dealing with loneliness or whatever else it might be. Um, and and uh, I would say I was, I not only, you know, took that up, um, I was probably a, a leading advocate of that culture through through many years. Um, now, in part, that was because I was a, a fun-loving guy who, you know, was happy to push a few limits um, and, uh, you know, um, probably undoubtedly pushed them a bit too far at times. Um, there was certainly a moment in time... Uh, where that 
came to something of a head. Um, I recall quite vividly a day when I circumvented the Navy health system, went to my wife's um, my wife's doctor and got a referral to a, a drug and alcohol clinic and uh, took myself off there. Um, and I, I wasn't an inpatient, but I admitted myself to their care. And over several months of um, treatment and counselling, um, came to grips with with what was by then about a decade of um, alcohol abuse. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't say that um, that work then um, fixed me. It didn't even normalise my relationship with alcohol. But what it did do was, um, you know, set a bar. Um, it, it was a point in time where I absolutely recognised that alcohol was not my friend. And it probably never would be. And I had to be really specious in how I dealt with it. And uh, and I had to find other coping strategies to help me through um, life and to, you know, help me um, develop and, and perform as, as an individual and as a leader. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, thank you uh, for sharing that both in the book and, and now it, it takes a, a huge amount of courage to talk about these things. And particularly as men, we don't tend to want to talk about things that we're uh, perhaps ashamed about or we find it awkward to talk about. Um, mm. But there's a surprising number of people I had uh, many years ago, one of my relations who's sadly now dead, um, became alcoholic, linked in the military system, uh, hid away you know, bottles of wine and things and just did it for the confidence and, and giving themselves courage. But it eventually through other means, killed them. Wow. And um, I've got uh, a number of friends in the military where, come on, you know, be a man, have a drink. They say with this large beer belly and you go, I'm not quite sure this is, doesn't kind of fit. And I now, I think for the last, uh, this is the last six months, I've I've completely given up alcohol. I don't think I'll go back wow. to it. I, I occasionally, uh, I think we were on holiday in Greece a couple of weeks ago and I had, a glass one evening and I just thought I'm not really enjoying drinking this ethanol uh-huh. um uh-huh. you know and it's, it's sort of diluted ethanol but it's not really for me and 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 I've done it because it was what you did and you know you do it to try and fit in and and make friends so it's got to be a, a personal call but it's so hard to flow against uh the tide of a legalized drug that everybody takes. Come on, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, have another one. And and so, yeah, let's put that one to bed. But I think it is, it's it's a difficult one to, to deal with. Um, I'm always interested in how people cope with some of the darkest moments in their lives and what they learned from it, which we might learn ourselves from those dark moments. Peter, if you were to pick a dark moment and you had some pretty, uh, pretty, challenging ones over the years which would you pick and what did you learn yeah um dark moments so what what i know from experience is that you know living through difficult times and and that's whether they're sort of shared or individual um really can sap your your cognitive and your emotional and your physical reserves but they do also offer opportunities to um you know to exercise and to 
demonstrate resilience. There's a lot of talk about resilience, obviously, um, both individually and organisationally. I tend to think of resilience in a particular way. Um, I, I do not think of it as a muscle that you build or something that you accrue and then expend. Um, so much as I think of it as, as an ability. So for me to be resilient is to be able to do a couple of different things. And the first of those is to recognise the nature of the challenge that you're facing. Um, and, you know, life's complicated. You know, and we're, we're often dealing with lots of different issues at a time. But what's the nature of the, the real challenge that you're facing? And when you can identify that, then you can go on the hunt for the resource that will support you through that challenge. And that might be an internal resource, um, you know, a way of coping that you've, you've developed, or it might be, you know, external support or an external resource. And then, of course, the key is to be willing and able to access that resource um, at the right time, at the time that you need it. Um, so I, I do very much think of resilience as being um, that process and that ability to move through those steps um, and and gather around you the resource that will support you through that particular challenge. Oh, oh mm. that's a good one. And what was, if you were to pick out one of many challenges, what was your darkest moment and, you know, how did you show your resilience? Yeah. I don't know about darkest moment. Let, okay. Uh, so the flood features in the book. Mm -hmm. um, I suffer a few floods over time. Um, but there's a flood we suffer in um, in a submarine in which I'm in command, uh, and we're at deep diving depth, um, and we have a we have a, a failure on a um, flexible hose, and that results in the submarine flooding at the rate of a ton a second. Wow. Uh, um, yeah. So um, I sometimes describe that as if you can picture a um, hundred crates of your favourite lager just sort of build that mental picture for yourself. And then imagine that volume being punched into your submarine through a hole the size of your fist every second. Mm. Um, you know, that's going to create some noise and some shock and some damage. So, so that was a, a very difficult day. It was um, uh, at the moment of a flood such as that, everything changes. You go from knowing the state of your submarine in intimate detail to just endless unknowns um, and certainly as commanding officer there's a lot going through your your head um, now we we got through that um, combination of you know great redundancy in the boat great training and and great um, um, work from the ship's company on the day um, as challenging as that was there were there were definitely more challenging days to come um, at the time, we'd been preparing for a, a major four-month deployment up, up into Southeast Asia to conduct a, a bunch of classified operations. And, of course, that task before us didn't go away just because we'd had a flood. You know, our job was to um, pick ourselves up and, and get off and do that work. Um, Beyond all the sort of technical work, you know, the accident investigations, the design work, the repair work and so on, um, we did a lot of work um, with the medical staff and the psychology staff um, to, to work directly with the crew and, and help them 
you know, restore their their confidence mm. um, in their boat and so on. I recall um, at that time uh, there, there were two weeks where I lay awake um, at home all night, every night, holding myself as as still and quiet as I could um, for fear that I would, um, you know, I was I was basically just reliving the terror of that day. Mm. Um, but I was trying not to expose my wife to the extent of that trauma because I knew we had to get back out to sea. Um, and, you know, I was, I was fearful that I would not be able to muster the courage I needed to lead my people back to sea. Uh, and what I found was that I had to very clearly identify and name what it was that I was most afraid of. And that was quite simple. I was most afraid of, of dying if I went back out there. Mm. Um, and that fear, to be honest, didn't go away. Uh, but having sort of put a finger on it, I could, I could see it and I could, I could walk past it. Um, and then I was in a position to, you know, offer courage to my people. Um, and, you know, that comes back to that, you know, the humility and the humanity piece. I didn't just need to muster my own courage. I, I needed to bring forth compassion so that I could lead my people through their fears and what was what may have been holding them back. Yeah. Um, yeah and yeah, we, yeah. we did, you know, two weeks, two weeks after that flood, we took that submarine back to sea and, and every member of the ship's company who'd been on board during the flood um, came back out to sea and, and took it back out. Mm. Well, I mean, congratulations to that. And that, that whole thing about our fear of dying, it's a, it's a trite thing to say that we're all born with a terminal illness, but, you know, we are going to die. It's just a question of mm. whether... For me, it's tomorrow, or is it going to be later today, or mm. might I live to eighty? And there's that book, yeah. Four Thousand Weeks, uh, by Oliver Berkman, where if you're going to live to eighty, you have four thousand weeks. Now, now I'm almost sixty-two. I've got about nine hundred left. Yes, ain't long. But then, if that's if I'm going to live to eighty, right. that's <laughs> another eighteen years. And so you certainly realise, um, memento mori, the. Um, Remember, you're mortal. Remember, you will die was the, the message that the Roman slaves would whisper into the emperor's ear when he got his his um, uh, triumph, when he could go through Rome with all the prisoners that he's captured and all the elephants wow. and all these. And, and they would have a triumph. And uh, But the problem was, and he'd wear purple to show that he was an emperor, that kind of even his face was purple. But the, the slave's job was to keep saying memento mori memento mori remember uh -huh. you are mortal that you, right. this too you shall you shall die as well and and so your day will come don't get too full of yourself mm. uh, my mother was very much into this don't get too big and i'd go mother i've just i've just won the world record for the cyprus double mountain <laughs> marathon and she went yes dear that's very interesting what did you have for lunch today and like uh -huh. uh, <laughs> don't get too big for your boots and as it always always that you know just just stopping but I, this, I this a wife and daughter, Jonathan, who helped me out there. Well, the that was my next question. <laughs> um, people in the services, particularly if they're male, now there's a lot of uh, more female uh, pilots and uh, yep. Samaras and all sorts. But but in the old days when you and I were serving for many of the years, it was just men. 
And they needed really good partners to see them through. Now, give us a call out, if you would, for your for your wife and your daughter, because, you know, there were many a times that you weren't there for them. At a key yeah. stage of their lives, you were, uh, as my father was away, sometimes he was away at sea when I was a, a, young, a young baby, um, for certainly six months to a year without coming back. Uh, right. It wasn't things, but but you must have quite an exceptional wife and daughter. Uh, tell us a bit about them. Yeah, um, and I, I would say, uh, Jonathan, I I um I'm a little surprised myself to learn or to realise now and again that um, we've had we've had women serving in Australian submarines for a quarter of a century now. Wow. So you're right. For many of the years in my earlier days, um, I was I was only ever at sea with with men. Um, but, you know, the same applies for them. Very often, um, you know, it's the strength of a partner back home or at least the strength of, you know, family and friends and those connections that not only allows us to go and serve at sea, but also makes it meaningful to do so. Um, so there's there's this, you know, real dichotomy of, you know, connection and disconnection particularly in something like submarine service where the, the disconnection can be so absolute and can be, you know, extended. Um, so um, there's a story I've told a couple of times about um, uh, my daughter and it, it, it's, it's in the time really beyond my submarine days. Um, I was, um, had been posted to Iraq to serve as the chief of staff in the Australian National Headquarters in, in Baghdad. And this was back in 2006, uh, yeah, 2006. So a pretty, pretty nasty um, period of, of history for Iraq at that time. And I sort of observed in the lead up that um, my daughter, who was about 12 years old then, um, was not having any really strong reaction to my upcoming deployment. And I didn't know whether that was because she did not understand where I was going and, and what was involved um, or, um, you know, she was she understood but she was hiding from it um, or, or what was going on. So I had a conversation with her and, and she came up with something that I found quite remarkable, which was she said, look, Dad, um, uh, for most of my life, you've been serving at sea in submarines. And when my friends asked me, where's your dad, you know, at the athletics carnival or, or whatever it might be, the only answer I had was he's at sea. But And, and of course, because I was a submariner, she didn't know where I was. She didn't know what I was doing. So that wasn't enough of an answer for her and it certainly wasn't enough of an answer for her her mates and so she said to me on this day dad i know you're going to iraq i know it's dangerous um uh, yes i'll miss you but at least i will know where you are hmm. and for me that's going to be easier to deal with than what i've had to deal with for the past wow. decade or more wow um, and it was very telling to me that you know, for much of that time, I really hadn't understood um, our relationship and, and the impact of my service on her. Um, so, yeah, they, uh, they, they um, put up with a lot and, and deal with a lot. Um, it just uh, affected me a bit 
um, because I know with, with my father being away for myself and my two brothers and my mother, she was, you know, 33 when he was killed. He was 33 too. That, that suddenly, you know, him being away, this time he wasn't coming back from sea. Right. Uh, and he was killed out in Changi in Indonesia when his yeah. Yeah. aircraft uh, had a fault caught fire and uh, he got his co-pilot out, but he died in the process of saving his life. And, and I just, I always kept hoping hmm. that he'd come back from sea and he hmm. never did. No. And um, it's easy to minimize things or maximize things. Uh, I, I'm not a victim. I, I've come to terms with it. I did a wonderful program. You did your, your work. I did mine. Um, one of the great things for me was the Hoffman Institute program, which is seven days. I think they do one in Byron Bay in Australia. I'd recommend it thoroughly. Uh-huh. Best, best program I've ever done. I spoke to the managing director of it on this podcast, uh, a lovely lady, and we talked about it. But I think as often with the armed services, you serve your country, in your case, mm. Australia, mm. you give your time, you give your energy, but you can never know the impact on your family, uh, who, who they are serving to. Mm. And there's an impact, and it's the silent impact on them of the moments that you weren't there and mm. you can't get that back. And I know that in my 20 years service in the army, I made a particular point whenever I could I was lucky to be home for Christmas, I think, in most years. Don't think I missed a Christmas. That was quite exceptional for, for the army. You were oh. off on the way on deployments. But I just happened to, the timing just happened to be right. And, and to be there at many of the important things at, at their at their uh, school. But, of course, uh, their mother and I got divorced after after 23 years. And that was that was hard. Uh, I'm now happily remarried to to Lee, and we we have a great life. But it, it it doesn't take away the impact on the family. So I'm really pleased for you that you and your wife stay together, and you've got a good relationship with your daughter. But there will be times when you will be at a distant, you know, estranged, as it were, a bit from them both, because when you're away, they have to get on without you. Yeah, indeed. But many yeah. men, when they come back think they should take command again of the household. Big mistake. Because <laughs> they've happily been in command without you. Right. Why are you just moving them out of the way and say, I have command now? You almost yeah. I, I don't no one kind of gets it just right. But what did you do and how did you manage that transition so you didn't alienate the person who was running the family happily without you? Right. And then you come back and and you want to show that you're the man of the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a curious dynamic, Jonathan. Hey, look, before I talk to that, thank you for sharing that experience of yours with your your father and your your, your experience there, Jonathan. Um, look, I I didn't always get it right. In fact, I very often got it wrong. <laughs> um, and I, you know, to a degree, the more senior I got, you know, the more command I had, you know, when I was away in my submarine, that often made it just that little bit. <laughs> little bit harder um i guess i got a bit wiser as but um you, you know often you would have to well you just have to accept that they have a way of living um, my wife and daughter have a phenomenally close 
um, connection and relationship because they have shared um, so much, so much together. Um, and I guess eventually I learned to, you know, slide into that and, and take my place, my place at home. Um, mm. Could be curious, you know, to, to have that sensation of, um, and of course, when you're at sea in a submarine, it is both, you know, a workplace and your home away from home. Mm. Um, and, you know, we, we learn to um, live, you know, very comfortably within the discomfort, um, you know, we go to sea in submarines for year on year on year because we, we we love the life. There's some great adventure. There's a lot of attraction to it. So um, you can have that very strong sense of homeliness in your submarine away, and then you come home to your home and you can feel a little disenfranchised, and it is, it is quite mm-hmm. paradoxical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, I, I really relate to that, and, and even after leaving the military and being remarried with Lee, I had a, an office uh, a p- apartment in London where I did a lot mm. of coaching. And then I come back up here to my home in Lincolnshire, but I'd be down there for three or four nights and then up here for a few nights. And it was a bit like being away on deployment. I never kind oh. of felt I was ever settled anywhere. You always yeah. had to have a, a kit bag and ready to go. And I, I, I had other, other stuff down there in the flat and things, but it was only when the pandemic resulted in me not being able to use London and right. we went through and eventually sold the flat and that I was always here or going away for like I am to uh, America with clients or Germany with uh, another CEO and his his uh, board uh, to do offsites that I go away for a period of time and come back. But now this feels like home yeah. later in life than I ever expected, probably just after the pandemic when I'm almost 60. Um, so that's an interesting one. Let's, um, there's so much we can talk about, uh, but we haven't got um, that much time. So I just want to get the, the the essence of some wisdom and advice from you. There's, what we've had already has been fantastic. Um, so let's go sort of quick fire, as it were. Your, your, just, your tips that you'd give people from your experience. Firstly, a um, bit of advice. When you started out, um, if you went back and met Peter Scott, age 16 to 18, yeah. or other people have got young uh, young people at that age, yeah. what matters, what doesn't matter? What would you say? Yeah, look, I would I would have to send a message around uh, self-acceptance. Um, uh, you know, as a young person, you may not be the person that you wish to be or the person that you think you can become, um, but you are who you are. And, um, you know, being able to accept who you are in any given day, all that you are, um, respecting that and working with that, um, you know, can can um, save a hell of a lot of angst. <laughs> mm. uh, and I think, you know, the corollary to that is, you know, being kind to that person and taking care of yourself. Yeah. And I've, I've got no doubt that over time, you know, you learn either the, the easy way or the hard way that um, self-care is not selfish, mm. being selfish. Mm. You know, looking after yourself so that you're in a position to lead others and look after them is a is a responsibility as a leader, not not an aside, not an afterthought. Wow. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. Let's go around the inspiring leadership compass, which we tend to use the sort of eight principles. It gives us some lovely topics to talk of and what makes high performing leaders and teams. The first one is moral quotient, MQ. Mm. Um what tip would you you give about 
what you learned when you let your values, your principles slip and how you got them back on track. Yeah, yeah. I, I can follow on a bit of a story with regarding the family on that one. Um, Jonathan, there was an occasion when I was, I was serving as head of the submarine warfare training and it was a, a year in between at-sea commands. So it was a great opportunity to you know, be rekindling those relationships and looking after my health and, you know, just getting everything back on track. Um, and we we took off. I took the students um, from the submarine warfare officers course away um, to take them to sea in one of the boats out of Darwin, so Timor Sea. And they had a week of evaluation up there to become qualified as watch leaders. Um uh, great week at sea. Um, they all did fantastically. We piled in. They had something to celebrate. Um, I didn't have anything to celebrate, but um, I had a thirst. And, you know, a couple of beers in the beer garden in Darwin turned into one hell of an all-night binge. Um, following morning, so this is another bloody drinking story, but the following morning um, turned up late to the airport uh, intoxicated, refused permission to board. Um, given that I was trying to fly from Darwin to Perth, it was a day before there was another flight home that I could get. So, you know, my wife, Shauna, was ropeable because I left her in a position where she had to host a bunch of people who she did not know at an event that I had organised for that weekend. So, you know... <laughs> I'd, I'd had an opportunity to, you know, fill the goodwill bucket and I'd absolutely, I just kicked it a mile down the road. And, you know, the lesson for me there was, you know, that was just an abysmal failure on my part. And, you know, it was really about knowing what you value and, and honouring what you value and, you know, being able to translate what you value into who are the people that you care for and, and genuinely honouring those people, um, which I clearly failed to do <laughs> on that occasion. Yeah, well, um, we've had those moments. I know I've let my values slip, and it's a case of getting it back on, learning yep. from it and not repeating it. Thank yep. you for that. That's one hell of a story. Um, PQ is the next one, meaning and purpose. Um, Gallup survey, you know, 17% of people find meaning and purpose in what they do something in the 60% or so are neutral and, and about 20%, and the numbers don't quite add up in that way, but about 20% are really disengaged massively. And it right. seems to be around that sense of meaning and purpose. Yeah. What, what would you do to, to, you know, in your coaching or whatever, a quick exercise to help people find their sense of meaning and purpose, why they should do what they do, their, their, their big why. Yeah. So, okay. Um, I, I love that phrase that talks about us being um, human beings, not human doings. Mm. And, you know, helping people to understand who they want to be as opposed to what they want to do um, gives you some great clues into, you know, what they do value, where their interests do lie, what gives them satisfaction and so on. Um, I, I personally kind of break this down every day. I set out um, um, you know, really a challenge for myself to do two things, um, to love and support my family and to lead and serve others. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it doesn't matter what the 
you know, what the object is on the day, if I find myself doing those things, loving and supporting my family or leading and serving others, then I, I know that I can find meaning in that. Fantastic. Now, health question is the next one. Um, you're a man who's put huge drive into phenomenal amount of uh, health. But for someone who does, you know, ultra marathons and uh, turning around your, your, your bad old days of the drinking habits and, and keeping yeah. that uh, under wraps, um, what would be a top tip for physical health and mental health? Quick tip for other people listening. Yeah, I I tie the two together, um, and you know that the thing that I, as you mentioned, that I fundamentally do there is is um, get out on the trails. What I understand though is that I can't run on the trails if I'm not, you know, building the foundations of good health. Um, you know, so every day I'm doing something around yoga or Pilates or some, you know, stretching or mobility exercises or whatever. Um, to keep me sort of, you know, physically going. And, you know, with that in com combination with um, really good sleep habits um, and not a bad diet is what gives me the foundation to then go and perform wherever I need to perform. Yep. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, EQ, emotional and social intelligence. Um, how have you learned to listen well to other people? A key quality in any leader but certainly in a executive leadership coach yeah yeah um it's spot on there jonathan i think um it is an essential skill for a leader i i'm 100 percent convinced that it is the skill um that you need as a coach um I, you had a guest on and you mentioned him earlier oscar trimboli um he's he's got great wisdom around listening um I guess the two bits that I've really taken from him and taken to heart are that first piece about listening to self, um, understanding and acknowledging what's going on for you. Um, you know, where are your thoughts? What are your feelings? What's, what's going on in your body? So that you can put that aside to a degree, accept it, put it aside and really put your attention towards the person with whom you're, you're communicating and trying to listen to. And then that other piece of, of listening for meaning. Um, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but what does that mean for you? Um, you know, that that helps um, immensely. So for me, it's listening to self and listening for meaning are great guidelines in, in that space. Great. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Um, resilience. You've talked a lot about resilience. Um, yeah. What's a, a, a tip to others to to pick themselves up in times of adversity? If you were to give a top tip, hope, hope. It's the value of hope. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, looking for and finding hope, even in the smallest of things, and and the ability of you know a glimmer of hope <laughs> to you know offer that prospect that things will things will get better. Yeah. I'll offer you a, um, uh, this sounds a little bit perverse, but one of my favourite um, trail running mantras is um, this will get worse before it gets worse. <laughs> and I, I just love it because, you know, when you're um, uh, 50 kilometres or 50 miles into a 100-mile race 
and you've you've run five you know thousand meter peaks and you've got five to go you've got to be able to accept the reality that hey um, this might get worse before it will get worse. And therefore, you may as well be comfortable with your current level of discomfort, yeah? Just accept that and, and be there. Um, but the other wonderful thing that it does is it tells you that things change. Sure. Yes, it might get worse, but yes, it might get better. And in fact, it almost inevitably will. So just, you know, write it out, be where you are, but live with that glimmer of hope that even if it gets worse, it might then get better. I love it. I love it. Um, in the last couple of minutes, just uh, your favourite book and then we'll do your two-minute top tip. What's your favourite book on leadership you recommend people listen to? Can, can I run through four really quickly? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, in um, uh, chronological order. So um, reverse chronological order. John McCain... Faith of My Fathers, wonderful book about leading and serving with honour. Um, Man's Search for Meaning, yeah. well-known, Viktor Frankl. Um, Shackleton, plenty written on, on Shackleton, but Frank Worley's, you know, first-hand account is amazing. So Shackleton's Boat Journey. And uh, this one was on my bedside table, Meditations, Marcus Aurelius. Love it. It's that timeless exemplar of, you know, self-reflection and, and insight. No, great, great books. And uh, John McCain, I haven't come uh, faith in my father. Oh. I haven't listened to that one yet. Well, Man's Search for Meaning has been a life, a lifeline for me. Shackleton, mm. I, I listened to the one on endurance, which was a phenomenal book. So if you've read that one, have a listen to this one. It's, it's quite good. And um, I'm a great Stoic philosopher, uh, pra- uh-huh. tried to practice it. Um, and so Marcus Rudis, Epictetus, Seneca, they all matter a lot to me in meditation. Right. So thank you. So um, would you introduce yourself, Peter, uh, in this standalone piece, which is also part of this podcast? Just say who you yep. are, what you've done in the past, and then give us your two-minute top leadership tip, and that will finish us off nicely. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, I'm Peter Scott. I'm the founder of On Depth Coaching and the author of uh, Running Deep, an Australian submarine life. Uh, my top leadership tip is to never add to the fears of your people. Um, rather, find the ways to give them the courage that they need to face what threatens them. So, you know, I know from some of the experiences we've spoken about, nothing's got the ability to sap your reserves like fear and anxiety, um, but it's a fact of life. Fear and anxiety are going to impact, impact and affect your people um, you know, every day to some extent. And it might be fear of success or fear of failure. Uh, it might be fear of being responsible or being powerless. Um, you know, change, uncertainty, mistakes. Um, so for a leader, recognising the sources and understanding the effects of fear can be really important um, because leadership's got a part to play in encountering these and, and bringing people through, you know, what challenges them. So never add to the fears of your people. Give them the courage to face what threatens them. Well, absolutely fantastic. Um, thank you. It's been a real privilege having you on. Peter Scott. Um, 
I, I think your book, Running Deep, is, as I said before, very powerful, uh, as is your personal life and your mistakes and your learning and your humility and your humanity and a nice bit of humor. And uh, I think people are very lucky to be coached by you. And I'm sure they'd also value your skills as a speaker to share some of your thoughts, even though you're a very modest, more introverted rather than extroverted kind of leader who doesn't want to be out there. But actually, you've got some great mm -hmm. wisdom to share. So, Peter, once again, thank you for being on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. Wonderful to, uh, to have a conversation with you. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.